Okay, thank you, Jason. Um, so a little bit more about biography. Uh, my wife and I moved to New York 10 years ago. We have a high school junior who uh, spent many years in this building at Geneva School. So this is a very sacred floor for me and this building, and so I, I'm delighted to be back. I have spent a lot of time doing, you know, pie memorization contests and spelling bees and assemblies and so forth in this space. Um, uh, and then we have a college junior, a college sophomore who, uh, who also went to Geneva and, and went to high school on the Upper East Side. And we, we live on the Upper East Side, so this is very much home for me. Uh, what that didn't say, that vocational bio didn't say that I'm actually a lapsed writer. Uh, I was a big writer in, in high school and in college, and I wanted to go to graduate school in fiction writing, and I was a fiction writer, and then an advertising copywriter, and then later a singer-songwriter, and then I was very, very lucky that um, I stumbled into some backup careers, uh, which were, uh, which, which my dependents are also very fortunate for that as well. Uh, I, I, so I spent these 18 years in the management consultancy world at Accenture, and then 15 years in the nonprofit ministry world, and, uh, and so here's what I want to do. Um, I'm going to do a very consulting-y thing. So uh, what I want to do is not, not just talk about the work that I'm doing now at Praxis, although I will get to that, but what I want to really do is reflect on some of the ways that my thinking about vocation has changed over the course of my vocational career. Um, and, and I want to do that by looking at three points in time. I want to talk about when I was 22, which is... Uh, I was coming out of college, and I was going into my first job, and so essentially, as I went into the world of work, what was I preloaded with in terms of my beliefs about vocation, work, the church, faith, culture, me, everything? Uh, so I would say that was moving from Act 1 to Act 2. What did I believe then? And then, 23 years later, I was 45, I was getting ready to move up here for this dream job, and what... What, how, had my vision, how had my views and my commitments and convictions on all those things changed in that 23-year period? A lot had changed. <laughs> uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about what I believed at that point and what I'm convinced of now. And then I want to go to a third point in time, which is now, which is 10 years later, and see whether anything's changed there. And I want to do that through sort of three buckets, vocation generally, faith and culture, which is my obsession, and... Um, uh, here we go. And, and my vocation personally, I'm not going to touch all that in a lot of detail because we're pressed for time. To me, as a consultant, that's a three-by-three three matrix, so that's what you get. Um, I've actually got this. I've got 20 copies of this on paper, so if you want to pass out these two pages that I'm going to go through, um, then that might be something that can help you follow along because there's going to be a lot of detail here on the screen, okay? So, and I've, and I've, this redemptive word is going to is going to be significant. This says at the top, redemptive vocation. So I want to talk about where I was when I started work and what I believed. Grew up a Christian. My father was a very, came from very modest beginnings pre-depression to become a very successful corporate executive. So everything I learned about work, I learned from him um, and, and for my church. So here's what I basically learned. I came into work as what I would call a soft dualist. So when we talk about dualism in the church, we talk about a way of thinking that separates work from the rest of life or that separates the private and the public or that separates the secular and the sacred. And all that was true of me. Um, my dad believed basically that success depended upon character, 
hard work and skill in that order, and he had tons of all three of those. So he succeeded. Uh, he su succeeded beyond his wildest dreams, I think. Um, so that's what you needed to succeed. Work is hard. So my dad was of a generation. Um, you didn't talk about work. He didn't talk about work at all with his family or with his wife, as far as I could tell. Work was something to be endured, and you were supposed to do as good a job as you can so you can, so you can uh, serve your family, so you can support your family. And you're just supposed to be as good as you can and try to get to the next level, but there was not that much meaning or purpose that he expected out of his work. Remember, he came out of, he was the greatest generation icon. So that's what I learned. Work is hard, and you're not supposed to like it. And it's not supposed to mean anything. You're just supposed to work hard until you retire and then stop completely. He failed at that. That's the one thing he failed at is stopping completely. Maybe you've heard that story before. So work is hard and instrumental, meaning it's just there to be able to support your family. Oh, and, and, and also there was a little bit of soft, like, I'm a business person, but ministry callings are a little bit higher than marketplace or business or arts or education callings. So that was a little bit built in there, too. The view I had of this Christian idea of vocation, maybe you guys have, have absorbed this, is that vocation, I'm calling it career-oriented and destination-oriented, meaning your vocation is what you do for work. Everything else is not your vocation. And vocation is like a destination that we're all trying to find. We're trying to find the one thing we were called on this earth to do, and the lucky ones find it out early. And then they spend their whole careers doing their vocation. The rest of us kind of stumble around trying to figure out what it might be. And if we're lucky, we might get to do some of our vocation by the time we're done. And if not, we lose out on that lottery. That's actually what I thought vocation was. We're all trying to find the one thing. Um, I don't want to get into too much detail about faith and culture, but just let me just lay a couple of things again, because I think maybe this is helpful to you or may resonate with some of you. I was, I was raised a Christian. To me, Christianity was, we're sinful, you need to get saved. That's basically it. And so I was in a tradition that what I would say was part of, have you ever heard of the two-part gospel, the four-part gospel? Does any of that language make sense to anybody? Um, the two-part the, the biblical story is often framed as creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the, God's big story from Genesis to the maps. A tradition that really focuses on we're sinful, let's get saved, and then let's go to heaven when we die is what we would call a two-part gospel. Very much about fall and redemption, personal fall and redemption, not very much about what happens at the beginning or the end. That's certainly the tradition that I grew up in. So essentially I felt like as far as looking at culture, which is not just arts, but architecture and politics and business and education, all those things, I had this view, I would say, this little graph here, this little um, bell curve, I would say this. This is, what I this is what I took in from my church. There's Christian stuff, and that's good. There's a bunch of bad stuff you need to stay away from. And everything in the middle is neutral. doesn't matter. Nobody ever showed me the graph or said that. That's just what I picked up. That's what I realized, because nobody ever seemed to care that much about the theological meaning or importance of architecture or of law or of medicine or of education or whatever. It's like there was Christian stuff, there was evil stuff, everything else you just sort of got to figure out on your own. Um, and as far as, if you ask me what redemption was, I would say redemption was personal salvation. 
which is true, <laughs> biblically true. So that's how I was preloaded going into work. And I think that's how a lot of people, certainly of my generation, maybe a little bit Christians of the current rising generation, maybe less so. I didn't want to do business. It was the only thing I could get a job in. Uh, so I figured I would do it for a little while and figure something else out. Um, I had no idea what my mission or purpose was. That's nothing new for a 22-year-old. I would say I was an unambitious generalist who had no particular idea and figured that they would figure it out along the way. I had character. I could work hard. I had some skills. I knew that would be useful. Hey, John. John. How are you? Um, and uh, John Moon, ladies and gentlemen, my good friend. Uh, um, so that was, my, that was my going in position at 22. Okay? I think that's a very, very common story. Now, fast forward. I spent 18 years at Accenture. That was a very bumpy ride. Uh, I did well there, but I had a lot of angst about Accenture, and I realized in part that it was this. I realized that all of us were complaining about how miserable we were, and I thought that my complaining was the same as everybody else's complaining, but it wasn't. What I discovered after many years was that they all were complaining just because that was a thing you do, but they all really, really wanted to make partner. And I didn't. And I didn't want to tell anybody because there was no place for that. And they essentially had bought into the narrative of what we were doing there, and I more and more didn't. Um, and so it took me a long time to work out what was the difference between, hey, work is hard, everything's a struggle, and I don't belong here. I belong doing something else. Not because this is a bad thing, just because it's not for me. It took me 18 years to figure that out. I made some pivots along the way that helped but in the end, I realized, one of the things I realized was that more than anybody else I worked with, I cared more about the organization's mission. Like, my, I, the mission ha had to be on the nose for me. If it wasn't on the nose, like, I couldn't do the thing. And that made me vulnerable and fragile, I suppose. But I real, it took me 18 years to realize that. And I realized, well, I got to go do something that I really care about. So I gave, my gave myself permission to leave. My dad said, the one thing you cannot do is leave a job without a job the only time I ever didn't take his advice to my knowledge. So I left a job without a job. And I started this journey of being, trying to be in the, in the Christian ministry nonprofit world. Um, I, I, uh, I think by then I had become a Presbyterian. So I had all the answers now. <laughs> I had discovered Reformed theology. I had, it had lit up my understanding of vocation, my understanding of theology, my understanding of culture, my understanding of how it was all connected. I had this historic sense of faith of how all these things sort of dealt with my aesthetic self and my aspirational self and my intellectual self, and I was at home, finally. And I realized that success was not just character and hard work and skill, but it was also passion. Now, that seems like something any 22-year-old would just come preloaded with now. They would say that, but nobody was talking about that when I was 22. Nobody was talking about having passion for your work. And... I actually realized that I was allowed to try to have meaningful work and that I was allowed to enjoy it. That work was, was to be something to be enjoyed, not just to be endured. Never occurred to me growing up. That's not the fault of my dad. That was just not the way he thought about it or was taught to thought about it. And also, remember, for my dad, any work, any work was good work. He grew up in Oklahoma in the 20s and the 30s. And when he came back alive 
from the Pacific Theater in World War II, to have a job that would pay the bills was the highest possible thing that you could have. To have succeeded in that job was all upside. So the aspiration that we should have a lot of fulfillment and meaning and purpose and joy in our work was a narrative that he did not enter. But I was entering it. I had different kinds of expectations because of the way the culture had moved on. Um, I came to see that vocation was actually much more comprehensive, that everything we do is vocation. So I was, a, I was a parent of young children. We were homeschooling. I was working like crazy on that. I was just as called to that as I was called to my job. I was making all these rock and roll records that nobody listened to. I really mean that. Uh, I was called to do that. It was just as much my calling as the things I was getting paid to do. Hey, I was actually called to to go through the process of becoming and serving as an elder in a PCA church. I was called to do that, even though I felt myself totally unqualified. So I got this picture of vocation that it was for all of life and that it was serial, meaning it occurred to me that the biblical idea of vocation was really more about a series of assignments from God. A series of, a series of assignments, not one destination that you were going to either figure out right away or take some time to figure out. There was a series of assignments, and some of them would be harder than others, some of, them would, some of them would be uncomfortable, and you might not even succeed in some of them. You wouldn't be called to succeed or fail necessarily. You'd just be called to do it. And that was true for all of life. So blew my mind. So as I was studying theologically and worldview and all this stuff, I was starting to apply that to my own thinking and thinking, hey, the second half of my career may not be a total waste after all because I felt I had wasted my career. So... Um, this whole time I've been not talking about, I've been talking about that, sorry. So um, I started thinking about creation and restoration. Why are we here? What did God give us to do in the garden? What is the creation mandate? What is all this law and architecture and politics and business and, and film and music for? Do they have meaning? And do they have meaning outside of evangelism? Um, I came to see that the answer was very much yes. And I came to have a different view of culture that I've tried to illustrate with this little two-by-two, two, again, management consultant, that <clears throat> there's basically good stuff in the world and bad stuff in the world, and secular people create stuff and Christians create stuff, and everybody creates it all. What do I mean by that? It means that any time a Christian does something or creates something in the world, they're bringing into it a sin, selfishness, brokenness, tribalism, blind spots, idolatry. So anything a Christian creates is going to be shot through with things that are dehumanizing. And anything that an unbeliever creates, because they're made in the image of God and because of common grace, is going to have the good, the true, and the beautiful in it. That was a complete paradigm shift for me and a complete different way of thinking about everything I was coming up against in my life, completely different. And it actually gave me a lot of hope. Um, and it actually made it, it, one of the problems it solved for me was I didn't like Christian music. I liked music that was made by non-Christians and this gave me theological permission to do that. So that was okay. Um, I think that I, if you ask me then what's redemptiveness, what's redemption, I would say it was stories. Redemptive stories. Something's lost. It's recovered at a cost. It's restored to the way it's supposed to be. That happens in movies. That happens in music. That happens in fiction. So I became obsessed with what is redemptive art. And I taught on this at church and all that stuff. And I, all that's still true. I love all that. 
Here's two things that I realized about myself. One is, I didn't have the ambition to be the top guy in anything I was doing. And the culture didn't allow for you not to want to be the top guy. So I had to figure out something I was good at that wasn't that. So I came to this idea that I was supposed to be a secret weapon. I was supposed to be a great number two. And that meant that I was supposed to be this generalist who was really interesting and good at a lot of things and helpful and positive and would come alongside visionary leaders, number ones, to help them do their thing. That's what I realized I was made to do. And that realization, which was very hard to come to, has shaped my personal, like, what is Scott about? My personal individual vocation a lot, uh, more than anything, any other thing. And I realized also in coming to that conclusion something else. Everything that was important about the essence of me at work, how I like to work, what kind of work environments I succeeded or failed in, what made me productive, what made me motivated, how I like to work on tasks versus people, how I like to work on strategy versus tactics, what were the things that um, uh, uh, caused me to fail and succeed and relate to other people well, all those things, every single one of the things that was really the true essence of me, not a single one of them would show up on a resume. So I became, so I realized that everything important about us doesn't show up on a resume, so I came up with this idea of the resume behind the resume. That all the things that a person needs to know about what they should be doing, what jobs they should take, what jobs they shouldn't take, how they should be bringing themselves into the world, all those things, most people never actually know. Most people never actually know what they're good at and how they're wired. And that's a tragedy. So that's some thoughts I had about my own personal vocation. So it's 45. I'm 45. It's 2008. I'm going to come. I come to New York to work in the greatest city in the world in the early part of 2008, which was not a good time, by the way, to come to New York City, as I discovered. Um, Good thing I had a job in March. And so what happened? What's happened since then, and then how does that wind up with today? So I, had these, I came to New York to do what's been two dream jobs at Redeemer and Praxis. The most important thing I learned was that all is grace. I thought that when I was 45, basically, that character, skill, hard work were all things that we earned. But I realized that actually everything is a gift. Even the ability to have character, the ability to work hard, the ability to have skill, the ability to have passion, all these things are completely gifts that we have not earned. They're part of grace. Um, I realized that work, even when you're doing your dream job, work is still really hard, even if it's meaningful, even if it's your favorite thing, even if it's the center of your vocation, whatever that means, work is really hard. And, and that was a hard lesson to learn. I also came, I, you know, I was working with Tim Keller writing books about the gospel, so I really got serious about thinking about what the implications of the gospel were for life. And in fact, I even worked with Tim on a book that I haven't seen in here, but you should all read, which is I'm stealing basically everything from, which is a book called Every Good Endeavor, uh, and is really, I think, I'm biased, but I think really one of the best resources for thinking about faith, work, and culture that there is in vocation. So um, to me, I got obsessed even more with this idea of redemption. Redemption is salvation, sure, and redemption is stories and art, sure, But I began to realize that the real possibility for redemptiveness is in 
relationships. And I'm, I'm in the middle of some redemptive stories. Some are taking a year to play out. Some are taking 50 to play out. Some may will not play out until heaven. But at work as well. That redemptiveness is a thing for work. And here's what I mean by that. First of all, my own career was redeemed. So there was no single realization that I've ever had that was more satisfying than this. Spending 18 years doing a job that most of the time I hated, building skills that I thought were wasted, and were completely non-transferable for a mission I didn't care about. And then, five years later, to come into a mission and a team and an individual and to find out that what they needed exactly was what I had spent 18 years building to no purpose, as far as I could tell. So being of use, which is one of my highest values, <laughs> being of use, you could probably guess my Enneagram from that, was, and, and having the redemption of this, to me, misspent first half of my professional life into something I cared very much about was one of the most profound experiences of my life. And I feel like that's, in some sense, what the second half, or let's say the second two-thirds, let's hope, of my career is about. But also, I realized, hey, why is work hard? Yeah, work's hard because we're under the curse. It's work hard because, it's hard because systems are, are messed up. It's, it's hard because other people are sinful. But mostly, work is hard because I am messed up. I am actually in need of redemption, not just once, but daily. I actually have blind spots. I offend people. I do even when I'm not trying to. I'm selfish. I'm prideful. I am essentially bringing a lot of hurt into the world that I don't even know about. And that's one thing I've learned in these last 10 years, that basically redemption is a daily diet. It's a daily story, not a one-time story. Um, But what I want to finish on is where I am with my work, because I now work for Praxis. And so this little diagram down here, which means nothing to you, means a lot to me, so I'm actually going to talk about it. So I'm going to flip the page and flip the page there and talk about the work we do at Praxis, where I've been for now two and a half years. Because actually the, the, the punchline is that redemption is not just a feature of my life, but it's actually the idea that I work on now. So here's what I mean by that. How many people have heard of the organization I work for, Praxis? I assume very few. Oh, my. Okay. All right. Um, So we work with entrepreneurs. We help growth stage entrepreneurs and businesses and nonprofits who are all, all of them are Christians. We help them build and grow their their ventures. I've been doing it for about seven years, and we have about 150 ventures that we've helped grow as part of this. Uh, We're a nonprofit, uh, a four-fee program. And when we work with founders... Um, all of them are Christians. All of them want to bring their faith to their work. All of them have a lot of, a lot of say in what, they, in what their venture does because they're founders, and it's still early stages. So they make a lot of decisions about what their work is going to be. All of them want to be witnesses, but they don't know how. All of them want, to do, they want their venture to actually reflect the glory or the character of God in some way. And again, they're very small, so they can actually change and affect it the way that their organizations run. And most of them 
run organizations that have nothing to do with Christianity. They're not running, you know, Christian nonprofits and ministries and, you know, Christian bookstores. Those things are all good, but they're running tech companies and consumer products companies and so forth. So they've got to work in an environment where they might be the only Christian, though they're the founder. They don't serve Christian markets. They don't have a Christian product or service, but they want, their, they want the gospel to be at the center of what they do. And they have absolutely no idea how to do it. They are lonely. They have no peers who help them understand it. They have, their churches don't help them understand it. They have no, no role models or very few role models and very few resources. So that's why we're in business. So we actually work with them to help them frame all of what they do as redemptive. The top of the slide says redemptive frame for work. So this is actually the framework we use with these very high-capacity, ambitious founders, and they found it incredibly helpful. I hope some of it might jog something in your own imagination. So here's what we say to these founders who want to bring the gospel to work, but they can't bring it explicitly to work. We say, look, and I'm sorry that I didn't make as many copies, ran out of toner. Um, We say, look, basically everything about an organization is boils down to one of three things. The strategy, the operations, or the leadership. The strategy is, what is this organization here to do? What are we trying to bring out into the world? What's our mission? What's our product? What's our service? How do we deal with customers? What are the narratives and brands that we tell? What are the spaces we create? Everything we're offering to the world. We call that the strategy. The operations is all the house. How we do culture, how we do compensation, how we do sales, how we, do, how we use our capital, all the partnerships we build, functions, processes, all that stuff to go do the strategy. That's operations. And behind that all is leadership. Who are the people? What do the people at the center believe about themselves? What do they believe they're here to do? What are the founders, because we're talking mostly with entrepreneurs, what do the founders believe about themselves and their calling and what they're supposed to be doing with this venture? So we talk about the way these three things relate to each other. So far, so good? Three dimensions. Everything in a venture relates to that. And then we say, okay, there's three ways to think about organizations. There's basically the exploitative, the ethical, or the redemptive. And we help them. We start by talking about the exploitative, which is this thing at the center. I will read these words for you because you may not have paper. Um, The exploitative essentially says, our job is to win. Our job is to take as much advantage as we can and to exploit whatever we can legally and to win for ourselves as individuals and for ourselves as an organization. So we're trying to win, and we're trying to win by hustling and edging out the next person. And sometimes this is actually a necessary way of thinking about the world. But basically, this is the fundamental default mode of most humans. It's not biblical, necessarily, but it is the fundamental default mode. So we say that the exploitative way is to take some trends in culture and figure out how you can exploit it to make money off of it. That's basically how all tech companies work. I'm going to revise that statement in a minute. That basically the point of, that in business, basically what we do is we try to use people for as long as we can and pay them as little as we can and treat them as poorly as we can and yet still derive value from them. Now, that's a very cynical way of looking at it, and I, but I'm not talking about a cynical way. I'm talking about just the baseline view of the way that 
um, most business and politics lends itself to a zero-sum way of thinking that I don't think is necessary. I, I'm feeling John Moon's eyes boring into the back of my head when I say that. So, um, and then, and then, the and by the way, I am a capitalist. Uh, and and then underneath that, what you have is this view that says, as a leader, what I'm doing here is living for self. I'm trying to get mine, and we're trying to get ours. Now, again, that's a I'm I'm stating it starkly because because I want to I want to contrast it. I actually think that. I am very pro-business and very, very pro-capitalism, and I think that capitalism is a system that harnesses our self-interest in very productive ways, generally. But I also believe that because we're all sinners, we all tend to get into a mode where we're trying to exploit. It's just our nature. But you know, there's actually a, there's a, there are always reform movements, and there are always people who say, no, actually, we don't want to be the bad ones. We want to be the good ones. We want to have a high social purpose, and we want to do good for the environment, and we want to do good for society, and we want to do good for our sector. We want to have good impacts out in the world. And we want to treat our people well. We want to not, not use people. We want to respect people. Okay? And that's all very healthy and good. And there are certain sectors in which that has become very prominent. Even BlackRock is telling us that, is telling that businesses should have explicitly social purposes. So that's a good thing. And the script out of leadership that, that, that drives that essentially is, I'm not one of the bad ones. I'm not one of the ex- exploitative, selfish ones. I'm one of the good ones. I'm one of the ones who's going to bring good into the world. And we're going to win clean. We're going to do it the right way. Because we're the better ones. That's actually the way our imagination and our pride works. So that's the leader script. We're going to improve, I'm going to improve myself, and then as a business, we're going to do these good things out in the world. And that's actually healthy. That's better than exploiting. And that we, when we talk to our founders, we say, that's the baseline. That's actually the starting point for you. You may never willingly exploit, but you always must be at the ethical. You always must be fair. You always, always must be seeking mutuality. You almost, always must be seeking integrity and ethics and excellence and fairness and parity and sharing wherever you can. But then we say, does the gospel give us resources to be anything else, to do anything else? And our answer is particularly, and again, remember, we're working specifically with founders who are starting early stage businesses, and they have a lot of say over what their organization does. And we say to them, do you have anything else that the gospel offers to you to do? Do you have a different, can you have a different imagination and a different vision? Does the gospel provide you with resources for greater generosity? And, of course, we say yes. So, again, a lot, of our, a lot of the businesses we work with, they're all small, they're all growing. They almost all, because they're run by millennials, they all have high social purpose. And what, on the vertical axis, what we try to help them do is think about their brands, products, and services as forms of joining God in the renewal of the world, not just in terms of doing right or doing good. And... We ask them to think about a couple of places where they can not only as founders respect people but bless them. And they love to think of opportunities where they can be generous and bless their employees and their customers and their partners and their funders. So we're pushing them to see where can there be places where the gospel can be lived out, where there can be generosity that could only come from the gospel, but that still is very um, 
hard driving and ambitious in terms of what they're trying to do in the world. And then here's the killer, of course. How do you take somebody who's incredibly ambitious, who's incredibly disciplined, who's incredibly talented, and is really want, trying to get things done out in the world, and, 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 and have them die to self? Is that possible? Is it possible to be someone who's very high capacity and is driving a lot of change and is driving a lot of profitability, who has learned that they are not one of the good ones? They're not one of the saviors. They're not one of the ones who, by virtue of their greater integrity or ethics, are going to save the world from itself. But they're actually the redeemed. And they are willing to die to self and steward all their resources, power, decision-making, imagination, time, money, to love God and love their neighbors, even in the middle of a very competitive business. It sounds sort of idealistic, in real life, these things are tensions that people have to deal with, and we just find that when we talk about the way that leadership, strategy, and operations work together and, and invite people into a community where they see others doing it, where they see others leading in this way, that it winds up being very life-giving for them. So here's the punchline. I think I've been obsessed with redemption for a long time as an idea. I was obsessed with it first through evangelism, then through art, and now I'm obsessed with it because I get to talk about it all the time because we've actually turned it into a diagram. And as, again, as a management consultant, I love that. So the work we do in our community is to help people rethink and raise their horizons for what they're trying to do. All of this is tension. All of this is tension because you have to have a profitable, successful, sustainable business in order to have jobs, in order to compete, in order to serve customers. You can't be giving everything away. But there's a big difference for a business leader, particularly a founder who has a lot of agency and a lot of tolerance for risk, there's a big difference between serving customers in order to win and winning in order to serve customers. Does that make sense? That you, are you trying to be profitable so you can serve more people or are you trying to serve more people so you can be more profitable? We find that the intent, the script, the motive matters a lot. Again, it matters, it matters a ton when your organization is 12 people. It matters in a different way when your organization might be 120,000. And we're working with people who, have, who are, you know, have teams that are very small. So that's the work we do every day, and I work with founders on this every day and about thinking about what they're trying to do and help them articulate it, help them re-envision it, and help them put that into practice in their businesses. So I'd say my career has been one about redemption that's been redeemed that now actually I talk about this all the time.